everybody. Welcome to The Legendarium Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Hanks, reminding you to go to thelegendarium.com for past episodes, for calendars, for the links to both Discord and Patreon. We want you to join the conversation and support the show as you are able. Today's topic is a Game of Thrones, not Game of Thrones per se. That would be the TV show, the HBO show. We are talking about book one in George Martin's celebrated A Song of Ice and Fire series. And gee, many Christmas, those jets are loud. Okay, so we're talking about <laughs> A Game of Thrones. Um, and we're doing it for one episode for now. Okay, there's every possibility that we could come to this again, but this was a fan-voted episode. Uh, we we are not going to be delving into it the way that, you know, I do the Lord of the Rings or something like that, or some sometimes we dig deeper into Sanderson or what have you. So I only mention that so that you know we're not going to bring up all of your favorite stuff. Okay, there will be a lot of stuff left on the table as we go through this one-hour episode, but uh, just wanted to prep you for that. I should introduce who I've got with me today. Uh, first of all, if there's one man I'd like to toss off an 800-foot ice wall, it would be Ken Johnson. And it only took you two tries to come up with that insult. Uh, you know, that's that's right. I, we, this is our take two. Okay, so sometimes it sometimes already. it takes sometimes it takes a minute. That's okay. Don't worry about it, Craig. <laughs> happens to everyone. And if you come out, if you if, if you break out in a case of Iridandus, just kill it with fire. Okay, dragon fire, preferably. <laughs> it's Era from Discord. How are you? Good. How are you? That's why I shortened it to Era. Anonymity. <laughs> Anonymity, so that nobody can look up Iridandus, the the full name uh, yeah. on the IRS database or whatever. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so this is our final episode in the um, GoFundMe uh, episodes, and I I had this idea that I wanted to bring on some folks from the patron channel. Uh, and it has been so much fun to talk with some of our uh, ardent fans and listeners. Um, and so this is the last one that we're doing in this round. Uh, and so I'm glad that you decided to come on, Ira. It, you've been a supporter of the show for the for a long time, and we much appreciate it. But also... Right start, pretty much. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm also really excited for you to come on because um, you... I, I'm both of you to a certain extent, but you especially, Ira, you get to put me in a really interesting place that I'm not used to, which is the positive voice, the defender uh, of the book on the podcast. I'm usually the one kind of like grumpily pointing out this or that thing that I that I dislike. Um, but as I understand it, you're not a huge fan of this book. So that should be interesting. I would like to see if your, your head's going to explode before the podcast is over. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we do that, though, Ken, did you do a recap for this episode? You know I did. And uh, do you know why I will read it right now? Uh, because I'm asking you to? Well, yes. And because the man who writes the recap should read the words. Oh, That's why. nice. Yeah. Okay. I like there it. There we go. All right. Find all the most selfish, self-serving, insufferable, horrible people. Make sure they succeed by screwing over anyone remotely redeeming or by just getting lucky. Repeat, now you're ready for a Game of Thrones. The massive doorstop epic centers around three-ish families, mostly vying for uh, to hold the controlling interest of the land of Westeros. The first people we meet are the good guys, the noble Starks of Winterfell, led by Ned, who's pretty much the last noble man on Earth. I like the Starks, by the way. I'm just going to put that out there right now. 
Pretty quickly, we meet King Robert Baratheon, who's married himself to the awful people of House Lannister. These three houses are all in charge because 15 years ago, they led a rebellion against the ruling House Targaryen and wiped them out completely, save for a brother and sister who now plot across the sea to one day swoop back into Westeros with their band of Klingons to regain the Iron Throne that was taken from them. Also, way up north, there's a really uh, group of really cool principal guys who watch the night for bad things beyond this huge wall of ice, but mostly they just pick on each other. So that's the setup. The plot, there's a, kill, uh, there's a plot to uh, kill the king and all the king's loyalists, and of course, it's led by House Lannister. The bad guy plans... Uh, bad guy plans rely on the bad fortunes of others combined with a series of really stupid decisions and general good guy idiocy. Fortunately, the good guys comply every single time. If I recapped every plot point in this book, we would seriously be here all hour and several more. Suffice it to say that Ned Boy Scout takes up the position as Hand of the King because his best friend asked him to and discovers secret plots and machinations that got the last hand killed. It's clearly a setup led by the Lannisters, the absolute worst character in modern literature who helps with the investigation and a couple other people. And after the king is basically Epstein in a hunting accident, <laughs> if you could see the, if you could see the oh, air quotes. Wow. That wow. tips his hand. Okay. Yeah, you know it. You Ken, know. Ken is going both barrels here okay oh yes ned tips his hand and stupidly just tells everyone what he's going to do and then he just blunders forward with it no tack no planning no cunning because it's the right thing to do or something and the good guys are incapable of planning ahead in martin world of course it doesn't help that his confidence man betrays him in the most transparent telegraph since alexander graham bell took up Lannisters lock him up force him to falsely admit that he's a traitor then lop off his head anyway with his own sword of all the indignity of course they do, because in idiot Martin world, in life, the monsters win. So I'm sure stuff happens after that, but I don't know what it is, because after Ned's stupid death, which he was about 80% responsible for, I threw the book across the wall, and, uh, or across the room and into the wall, and I'm, I'm sure it turns out all right. Meanwhile, in Winterfell, where uh, house good guys should have stayed, Rob and the annoying kid basically hang out and wait, because book two is coming. <laughs> the end. I got no questions. <laughs> I've left some stuff out. I just, I, I've got some the Ned stuff Stark to say death, based on that. The Ned Stark death might seriously be my all-time most angriest death in all of literature. And mostly because he does it pretty much to himself. Because he just, okay. he's, he's a good guy with stupid motives or with, a, with, with stupid execution. Oh, Ken. Oh, oh dear sweet I just, Ken. I, I uh, just, yeah, that's where I am. So, Hi. <sighs> recap you know what you, no no i'm i am gonna kick this to era first because you clearly have okay. something you want to say based on what ken just said what, he does what's your take it. on all that well, so ned's death look it it's predictable given how the book was structured um it wasn't stupid per se it's just he acted very predictably it's just <laughs> the way he got to it was what irritated me to no end it's in what way what do you mean so, um, do you guys and when you keeps... say the way the way he got to it, the way Ned got to it, or the way Martin got to it, the way Martin got to it. Okay. So, uh, do you know what a king cake is? A king cake? Yes. No, is that? So, I mean, I could guess. No, so it's super popular in the South around Mardi Gras time. It's from New Orleans. Okay. It's this. It's this huge donut-sized cake with frosting, yellow and purple on it, and inside is a little baby. And if you get the baby, oh yeah, you know you get you have good luck. Well, 
Oh yeah, they to have me, those in France. Okay. Right. Except in Game of Thrones and it's a king cake and the baby's an incest baby and kind of <laughs> have to deal with that. And so it's just I I can't tolerate it. It's it's just it's pure poison to me for the entire book. So so I, yeah, I can buy that. When we find out and uh, to to be clear to anybody listening if if it wasn't clear already from Ken's recap, we're going to assume that you've either read the book watched at least the first season of the show or both right okay so there's your spoiler warning whatever uh so you're you're saying era that in the beginning when bran is doing his climbing thing and he comes across uh, uh cersei and jamie and discovers the incest that like at that point you're out like this i'm done with this book is that what you're saying like so, no, I'm not completely out. Like when when they say the incest, but like, look, it. The problem for me is that the incest is unnecessarily gratuitous. There's no point for its existence outside of pure titillation. We could have accomplished everything that happened in the book, change Jamie's name from Lannister to I don't know, make him a ward of the Lannisters and make him a Stark, and then you could have this whole dynamic of him betraying the Starks and doing all this stuff. But no, it has to be incest. I mean, and there's no point to the incest besides purely to cause shock. And that's why I'm sitting here talking about it, because there's no mm. point to it. I'm, I'm not sure that I totally agree with that, because essentially what that sounds like to me is he didn't write the book the way that I would have written it or the way that I would have wanted him to. And so I hate it. Which, to a certain extent, is valid. Like, you know, tastes are tastes. And if something doesn't land right with you, that's fine. Um, but but with the incest thing, yeah, maybe it's just a shock. Uh, maybe it's to subvert tropes and expectations the way that we know that he's trying to do. Uh, and maybe it's that he's trying to make a nod historically to some of the, uh, how to put this politely, shenanigans that went on <laughs> in European monastic, or not monastic, uh, in uh, monarchical circles uh, in, uh, you know, 500 years ago or whatever the War of the Roses was. So that, that would have some validity to it, except, like, I have, okay. if, if you have a history with Martin, then you know that that sexual shock is kind of like, it's a, it's a writerly tool that he uses. So it's not, so you know it's going to be a deliberate choice he makes. For example, he edited the Wild Card series. And we see, there was a superhero that he had in that series who, uh, whose superpower was tantric sex. Um, so there was another, so the list goes on. So, so sexual shock is kind of his shtick. And, and his he never even, I never saw one single royalty check from that. I know he based that off of me and he just decided to. <laughs> That's right. Totally rip it. That's right. And look, in terms in terms of monarchy, I mean, like, and I know Martin knows his history. I mean, that was only ever done to retain uh, power within within a family line. Like, and there's no reason for Jamie and Cersei to do this, except for quote love or lust or whatever it is. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it's not even trying to maintain the Lannister line. Okay, so All right. that's I mean, fair enough. I, I, I just have a problem with it because. It, its only purpose to be there is for the shock. It doesn't accomplish any other task in the book. So this actually, th this gets us 
really meta really quickly. So I hope people will forgive me because I'm going to depart from the text and talk about the context uh, around the book. And uh, so Drew on Discord asked a really good question. And I'll just read the question and then we'll talk about the incest uh, here. The thing that put Martin and this series on the map was his subversion of traditional fantasy expectations. And I think that's a good word. He doesn't use tropes here. He says expectations. Did you feel he executed, pun intended, on certain deaths? Okay, uh, we, we can talk about the deaths at the end of the book a, a little bit later. But um, but do does it land in a way that's still satisfying over 25 years later with a generation of tropes averting fantasy under your belt? Okay, so there... I don't know if I absolutely feel this way, but I'm going to go ahead and posit this as a theory um, that it's valuable to have something so out of bounds, so shocking that it it really does uh, shake people out of their you know comfort zone with the genre. So with something like Jamie and Cersei uh, committing incest. Uh, over and over and over again. Um, it, it's it, maybe the value in it is that it's so shocking where now a generation later, we look at that and kind of roll our eyes like, yeah, this is old news. And I, people use um, sexual deviancy or violence or whatever to shock in their stories. Yeah, it, we've been dealing with this for a long time, but it was new when this book was published. This wasn't something that you read very often. And there's something to the idea of shocking us into, or like out of the old rut, right? I don't know. What do you think? If you're asking me or Ken. <laughs> I'm asking both of you. I guess I kind of know what you think, Ira. Ken, what about you? I, I think partly uh, you are right. And I, I, think, I think there's value to that shock. Um. I mean, I, it's not unheard of. It's it's not a, a storyline. Incest is not a storyline that is unheard of, even at the time he wrote it in the mid-90s. Uh, but I feel like I, I side partly with Era, um, and partly partly it doesn't bother me. Uh, one, because it, it's not a unique storyline. It might be, it, it might have been an underused storyline, but the Lannisters aren't the only incestuous family or couple in this book. I mean, the Targaryens were incestuous and they were incestuous going all the way back specifically for that reason of preserving the Targaryen line, but you don't see any of that mostly because they're all dead. But so that I think is where the, the Lannister uh, storyline is for sh partly for shock value, partly because I I've seen some twins with some really, uncomfortably close relationships, not that close. Don't, I, I mean, Ken, so what websites are you going to? Jim, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. They're all reputable and you don't have to pay for them. Um, <laughs> but I mean, there are twins, there are twins that have like really strange, like especially emotional attachments to each other. So, I mean, in a freaky 14th century fantasy world, you could see, you know, maybe one of those sets of twins really enjoys each other's company a little bit more. Uh, I don't know. But, I, 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 that's taking us away from the text and into some weird might be goings on. Well, 
we're we're getting we're getting meta, but, but the the point, the <laughs> overall point. I mean, leave leave the sex out of it for a second. And the overall point mm-hmm. is these two are very close, and they are using that close familial connection to subvert the current uh, the current political landscape, and uh, you know manipulating that in a way that, that basically they they control or take control. And you might be giving them too much credit, though, right? Because like Ira's the, the point was, are... you could, or specifically Jamie and Cersei, you're giving them yeah. too much credit because they're not thinking like, oh, we need to preserve the bloodline, or oh, we no, need I to don't, thwart oh, I don't this, think, I don't think it's any of that. that. I think it's just those maneuver. two have, yeah, those those two just have the hots for each other since birth, and that's that's what that is. But it, the two don't have to be mutual exclusive. They can use that to subvert the <laughs> the political structure, you know. By Ira's face, Ira's face is just. Perfect. I know. All right, he's... you're itching to say something. Go oh, era. Well, look, so I, so I come by this honestly. So look, th- this book was, I was there when the book was published. So mm. I read it and I was just as like, this is, excuse my language, bleep ridiculous at the time <laughs> I read it. So, I mean, not much has changed on this reread. And look, and so Drew's right to the extent that, yes, there's a subversion of tropes. And look, and Jamie's clearly the flawed Sir Lancelot. And so his quote, love for the queen is meant to be as perverted as possible to show that he's a flawed Lancelot. There's just so many other ways that, that could have been accomplished that just, it's just, like, there's no, I just come back to, if the point is only to shock, then I, I will accept it for, it for it being shock value, but it's going to color the way I look at the rest of the book. In sure. Words, are his choices meant solely to shock and cause, <gasps> this moment of, I can't believe he did it, or is it meant to actually like advance the story in, in a productive way? You know, I, that's super, super fair. My pushback would be that he doesn't introduce it for shock value and then abandon it um, for convenience. Oh, it's a central part of the story. Exactly, yeah. right. So Jamie and Cersei don't eventually acquire other lovers that they actually care about, you know, <laughs> at least not in this book. Um, he, so he doesn't just introduce it, shock you, and then leave it behind. He does integrate it into the story and make it mean something uh, in the story itself. So, yeah. Well, look, so let me ask it to you this way. And okay. your, your responses are your, are your responses. Just remove the concept of incest completely from the story. Let's mm-hmm. just say Jamie and Cersei were close friends, whatever, but they weren't brother and sister. Okay. Does that materially change the story? Yeah. Really, how? It... Because everything happens the way it happens regardless. So how, how does it materially change the story? Well, doesn't kind it of... materially change the relationships with, uh, 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 oh gosh, what's the little garbage Tyrion? kid? Joffrey. What? Joffrey. Joffrey and, and the other, uh, the other quote unquote, uh, you know, Robert's children. What's the Baratheons, yeah. right? Well, I, yeah. uh, where they're, they are the children of Jamie and Cersei. It, yeah, it changes uh, it so, quite a bit but... because. Because those three children now, instead of well, in the sense that instead of being uh, Lannister slash or, or Baratheon, what am I saying? Yeah, Baratheon Lannister. Cersei, Cersei, and say 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 uh, Jamie is is you know an Aaron, 
who's a ward of the Baratheons or something like that. You know, suddenly it's it's a, the child of the Lannisters and the Aarons instead of the child of the Lannisters and claim to the Baratheons, which sets the whole thing in motion because he's supposed to be. Uh, well, and that that does set the whole thing in motion because Ned comes out and says, this child is not Robert's heir. And they say, treachery, he is Robert's heir. And they couldn't say that if Jamie was a ward of the state. You know what I mean? Uh, or, well, I guess, you know what, really? Aaron, now you have... Now, now you have, now you have me thinking about it because they could still use the same logic. I mean, he could be, instead of full Lannister, he could be Lannister and Aaron and claiming to be a Baratheon, you know, or, or Stark or whatever, but he could, he could claim to be a Baratheon. But later without the, the consolidation of power, it doesn't have the same effect later. You but know, the because, because they can come the, the consolidation of power is the game of thrones the game right so you win or um, you die what we're doing by, by changing a jamie to another house is just adding another layer of complexity to to the game itself it doesn't change the story and what happens because the lannisters are still going to do what they're going to do and joffrey's still going to be their stand in to get what they get so i i come back to Aside from the shock value, what's the purpose of the incest? <laughs> okay. And, and I could be I guess willing to it, stipulate, Counselor. Like I said, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure how willing I'm uh, – or how willing I am to go in defense of the shock value. But I do feel like there is some value there. Uh, it does tell you something about yourself as you're reading something that is that shocking, right? And so, I, like I said, there's something there. I don't know how far I'm going to go uh, down this path, but, uh, but I, I don't reject it out of hand. I will say this. For those who have watched the show, and I should say shows, um, it does become a crutch, okay? So if you haven't watched season one of House of the Dragon, then close your eyes, skip forward 30 seconds. But they they go into the incest thing again. I, I won't spoil it beyond that, I guess. Uh, but incest features very prominently in House of the Dragon. And at that point, you know, like I was saying in reference to Drew's question, I think there's probably some merit there if the genre is stuck in a rut and you want to you know, blow everything up to do things like this that are that shocking for the purpose of being shocking, of getting the genre out of its, uh, out of its normal character. But then you get to, say, House of the Dragon, where it's like, oh, yeah, people thought that was shocking, and uh, boy, that was a water cooler moment. Let's get some more incest in here. Um, that felt gratuitous to me because like Drew said, it's been 25 years. It's, or in this case, gosh, 1996, 28 years. Speaking of being yeah. old, gee, at Christmas. Um, so, you know, it's been around long enough that at a certain point you're like, well, no, this is the new rut. You got to get out of that and find a new one, you know, and find a new track. So, so there is that. Um, Ken, so did you, you have something to say or should we do some you, uh, discord questions? I was going to ask, are, are you saying that I should feel bad or we should question my mental um, stability if I wasn't as troubled by the incest because I was able to blow it off and, and figure it leads to, to I, or I have bigger problems with the, with other aspects of the story. Oh, Ken, we all know. We all know. After 10 you. years, we all know yeah. what I'm about. Yeah. It's, <laughs> we expect nothing less. There you go. <laughs> all right. So discord question me, or 
Yeah, let's do a Discord question. You know, Kiptan had a good one right up front, but we'll save that toward the end. And let's change gears here because, Ira, before we started recording, you said, um, you said, you know, there are things about the story I liked. Okay, so let's get to some of that stuff. Um, Toromir asks, is there anything Martin does as a writer that he's unique at or which he does so much better than other sci-fi fantasy writers that he might as well be? Um, and he says, uh, views on this seem to vary wildly between fans and non-fans. So, yeah, is what is it that Martin does really well? And I've got my answer for this. I'm curious if you guys have anything off the top of your head, but what do you got? I love the setting. I think all of, all of the political stuff notwithstanding, I think Martin crafts an incredible uh, I, I won't say world because that encompasses, you know, all of the interactions and all that, but he creates an amazing map. Let's say, I mean, uh, the, the way the houses are conceived, the way they interact, the way the, the map is laid out, uh, you know, is visualized in my mind, all of the places, all of the names. I, I think it is brilliant. I, and in fact, I would say, in a, in a world where I'm familiar with, with Sanderson and all of the, and Robert Jordan and all these places, which do great jobs at world building, George Martin is right up there at the top. He is so mm -hmm. good at crafting a world. I mean, every, every place we went was so diverse, but it was so visually it in my mind, it was described so visually like the Irie and the wall and um, even places like Dorne where we never even haven't even seen yet. But I just every single place we went, I thought, oh, this this name is fantastic. This setting yeah. is fantastic. Everything was great. The the world he builds, I love. I'm I'm with you, Ken, and it reminds me of Tolkien. Oh, that's obviously. another one. That's another one. Yeah, <laughs> because, absolutely. Because while this is uh, almost explicitly anti-Tolkien, and and that's not to say that Martin that's, doesn't appreciate the Lord of the Rings or whatever. This is I like, feel like you it's know, matter design, versus anti-matter. This is yeah. anti-Tolkien. Um, he, he still shares with Tolkien a grounding in the real world, right? Because this is modeled on the War of the Roses and, uh, you know, Europe in, during that time. And so the geography is pretty familiar. You've got the wall. You've got the, like the island nation. You've got to go across the sea to find the Dothraki yeah. and all that stuff. So it has that kind of grounding that makes it uh that that helps i shouldn't say makes it but helps things to ring true uh in a way that they might not if it's a a world that's made up out of whole cloth right you go to roshar and you're lost until you get your bearings right but if yeah. you kind of look at the map of westeros uh, and and essos uh, you can kind of say all right yeah that that looks familiar to me at least to a certain <laughs> a certain reader of a geographical bent right so, so it's interesting that he shares that with, with Tolkien, I guess. Um, okay. Uh, Ira, any thoughts, the stuff he does really well? Oh, no, I agree with you. The, the only other two things I would add is, and the prologue is a great example of this. Hmm. He's a master of atmosphere, right? So he'll yeah. kind of set the tone and like that, that prologue, like he came out of it going, is this going to be a horror novel? Like, what's this going to be? But like, so he's very good at kind of shifting the atmosphere to suit whatever it is he's discussing. And he does a really good job of that. And then another one, just bigger picture. He's, 
he makes it easy to read his books. He's just he's just he's good at prose, so it's just it's easy to read. He doesn't make it difficult. Yeah. Does not make it difficult for you to understand the book. It's just very easy, and that's hard to do. Especially you know, I wanted when to bring that, that up big. too. Yeah. Well, that's that's exactly right, Ken. Because when you're reading it, I've got the paperback um, that comes out to just over 800 pages. Uh, so this is not a short book, right? This mm. this thing is hefty, and yet um, you read some other 800 page paperbacks out there, and you're like, oh my gosh, can you get on with it? You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, <laughs> lavish to the point of uh, indulgent descriptions and scenes and conversations where you're like, okay, a lot of let's padding go. for the sake of padding. And yeah. he, he doesn't do any of that. Um, at, at least not as far as I can remember. I, I don't know if I had a blue pencil, maybe I could find some passages to rework or take out, but I, I was never, um, I, I was constantly swept away with the s uh, simple, but not simplistic prose that I think you're talking about. Right. Ken, there's yeah. a great example of that. Um, well, that was Arab, he, yeah. If oh sorry, here my my mistake. Um, he does something that I would love for other writers to take a note on, and that's the way he uses uh, simile, um, and metaphor, because he doesn't overdo it. So there's a point early on in the book where um, we're following Bran as he likes to climb around. Okay, so this is this is climbing Bran, not after the fall Bran. <laughs> so he's climbing around, he's, he's jumping across the roofs in Winterfell. And um, let's see, he liked the deep, sweet ache it left in the muscles afterwards. He liked the way the air tasted way up high, sweet and cold as a winter peach. And just that, that little moment, it's this great bit of color, the, the, the atmosphere that you're talking about, Ira. Um, it's atmosphere. It's simple. This is not difficult. You know, people know what peaches taste like. And, you know, even if you've never had a quote unquote winter peach, you can you probably still, the words are evoking that, that feeling, that image. And then I was like, oh, that's a great little simile that he uses here. Um, when's the next one coming up? And I had to hunt and wait and wait and wait for the next one. And so what I realized is, yeah, you'll go pages with just very direct pretty sparse prose. And then he injects something like that uh, and uh, really brings life into his prose without overdoing it, where you're just constantly being hit, hit over your head with uh, metaphors. I agree with you completely. And I think yeah. uh, it really is one of his strengths because I'm, I'm well known on the Discord for not liking long books. Um, but <laughs> this book didn't go, this book went by fast. Yeah. It yeah. really did. It was, it was, and that's just a credit to his writing. It really, uh, things were described well enough. So, for example, when you get to the action scenes, they're described, but they're not over-described to the point that you could actually like, oh, he's painting by numbers. No, he does enough to give you a sense of what's going on, and then he lets your imagination fill in the gaps. And that's the mark of, a, to me, that's the mark of a great writer. Yeah, yeah. And even well, speaking of which, that that actually goes into what I was going to bring up. I was kind of riffing on your thing, Ira, but if you don't mind, I'll bring up another page. It's actually just a few pages after that. Sorry, a lot of my notes are from the beginning of the book. It's kind of like what you're saying, Ira. It sweeps you away. It doesn't feel like such a long book. And so suddenly I'm, you know, 200 pages later, I'm like, oh, I haven't made a note in a while. <laughs> Maybe I should consider that. 
anyway, so this one comes just a few pages after that, um, when Bran has been thrown off the tower and now he's convalescing in bed and, uh, and Jon Snow is leaving to go to the wall and he walks into the room to say goodbye to Bran. And there's, I think, a, just a stunningly well-written scene between him and Catelyn Stark. And Catelyn, yeah. Um, and I, I won't read the whole thing because it's several paragraphs. You know, my whole thing is with the best prose. It takes time to really appreciate it, but I'll just mention a few bits of it uh, where, you know, and to set it up for those who don't remember, he's a bastard. Catelyn does not like him because she he's a constant reminder of her husband's infidelity, you know, whatever we're led to understand at this point. Um, but, you know, he and Bran are half brothers and so... He's going to come say goodbye to him, even if he's unconscious. All right. So Catelyn's in the room and she's talking about how um, I, I wanted Bran to stay with me. I didn't want him to go with Ned to the Capitol. Um, but, 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 but I prayed for it. He was my special boy. Uh, sometimes prayers are answered. And then and Martin doesn't elaborate on a, sen a sentence like this. Sometimes prayers are answered. And you have a responsibility as a reader to think about that <laughs> and go, oh, right. Sometimes they're answered, but not in the way that I wanted or hoped for. So there's that great moment. And then a few paragraphs later, um, John tells her, or no, it's actually the next line. John didn't know what to say. It wasn't your fault. He managed after an awkward silence. And she says, I need none of your absolution, bastard. Uh, <laughs> and then... As he's leaving, he was at the door when she called out to him. John, she said. He should have kept going, but she had never called him by his name before. So you think, oh, this might be a moment, right, between the two of them. Oh, it's a moment. He turned right. to find her looking at his face as if she were seeing it for the first time. Yes, he said. It should have been you, she told him. <laughs> Then she turned back to Bran and began to weep, her whole body shaking with the sobs. John had never see seen her cry before. It was a long walk down to the yard. And that's his commentary on their dialogue. It was a long walk down to the yard. I, I think, it, so in answer to this question, is there something that he does that he's unique at? I don't think he's unique here. Um, is he so much better that he might as well be? I don't know, I'm sure it depends on the writer. But it's, it jumped out to me that Martin seems to trust his reader in this book in a way that a lot of writers don't, where he can write a scene like that with lines like that and finish it with, it was a long walk down to the yard. And it's not set aside with an extra, you know, page break or carriage return. It's not in italics. It's, it's just part of the prose and it's up to you as the reader to know what's going on and to interpret what these characters are, are feeling it's not all spelled out and yet it's clear as day yeah um and i think that comes from his skill but also his trust in his readers and i really really appreciate that a lot i all right i'll, I'll back you up on, on that um mainly because we see a lot of readers who or a lot of writers who don't trust their readers. And I, I've been a reader long enough, you know, two or three years that I, uh, you know, <laughs> books, books that don't have pictures involved. Um, no, I've, I've read a lot, especially over the last 10 years, but uh, I, I've, I've read enough to appreciate uh, not being talked down to by an author. 
and mm-hmm. and he does he does a very good job of that. And I, I want to give George, I'm going to call him by his first name because we're best buddies. I want to give him his I want to give him his due um, because there are a lot of things where I you know I come after him, you know. But sure, credit where credit is due, he is great at at trusting his reader. So so the next question comes from Storm Runner. Uh, and this one is, is the book grimdark? Oh boy. All right. <laughs> is the book grimdark? That's really, it's, that term grimdark is becoming a less favorite one for me. Yeah, me too. What was our so conversation malleable. during the, what was our conversation during the uh, Abercrombie. Um, Abercrombie series about grimdark? Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, ultimately I mean, you know what let's just throw it to you guys is the book grimdark and you can define it however you'd like i mean it's grim and it's kind of dark so i mean yes but i don't know i feel like that i feel like that term has been misappropriated to just be a catch-all for anything that's negative and uh, that's not necessarily the case um I, does Grimdark have to have an overtly nihilistic outlook on life? Because if that's the case, then yeah, I would say it's Grimdark. But I wouldn't say it's Grimdark necessarily just because it's negative. Sorry, go so, ahead, Eric. That's actually, it's kind of an interesting question because this book came out between Fires of Heaven and Lords of Chaos. Mm. So and I say that because real, I see real time. Yeah. It was marketed to us fantasy fans at the time as a gritty wheel of time. Mm. That's what it was marketed to us as gritty wheel of time. So is that is that just in the way that like it, when it, I get email after email after email from publicists trying to get us to read and review books on the podcast, and I would bet minimum sixty five percent of them are like the new Sanderson, right? Right. So yeah. is it just because Wheel of Time was popular in the moment? Oh, I, I 100% believe that because Game of Thrones has nothing to do with Wheel of Time. Really. <laughs> no. I mean, no, they... aside from length, right? There's like yeah. really nothing to do, right? So, yeah. Aside from size of the world, I, I, no. It's, they're not, they're not well, even close to the same. I, I reject the whole like grim, dark premise. Like, it has it has moments where people die that you don't expect them to die and things are bleak, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, you want to call it grimdark, call it grimdark. You want to call it gritty, call it gritty. You want to call it realistic, call it realistic. I mean, whatever. I mean, I've, I, I, I don't like the premise of classifying books by, quote, grimdark or something punk or whatever. The book's the book, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. There's, I, I, yeah, I mean, we've had this discussion on the show a few times, but essentially, uh, genre classifications are useful up to a certain point. Uh, but that point for me is a lot earlier than for, I think a lot of marketing departments <laughs> or Reddit commenters. So, uh, yeah, it's, is this book grimdark? How would I answer that? Well, I actually, I pulled up the, uh, Cambridge dictionary definition, which is, I think as good as we're going to get, a type of fantasy fiction with characters who be- behave in ways that are morally bad and a subject matter that is sad, hopeless, or violent. So by that definition, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sure. 
it's grimdark. I don't feel the same uh, soul-crushing pessimism. Or or what, what was the word we just used? The cynicism that you get in something like Abercrombie. It doesn't it doesn't quite hit me with that same tone. But you know, hey, maybe it hits somebody else with that same tone and this is all totally subjective, right? So, uh, it's a, it's a tough question to answer, but I I don't think it it didn't tick me off the way that Abercrombie ticked me off. How's that? At least by the end. I liked Abercrombie in the beginning just fine. Yeah. You had a hard time. Specify first law. By the time you got to the end of first law, yeah, I had a tougher time with that. Harder time. And who knows? Maybe I would go on. Maybe I'd go on with Song of Ice and Fire and feel the same way. You know, I liked book one of uh, of Abercrombie just fine. So I found this book to be plenty cynical um, and plenty grim. And, And I feel like this is only the beginning. I don't know. I feel like books two and three and four, which I understand three and four are kind of like, kind of like two parts of the same book. Like they're happening in conjunction with each other. But I I feel like, I feel like it could get grimmer and darker, but it was plenty grim and dark enough uh, that I was irritated by the end. (laughs) Let's, let's say that. I, I feel like, uh, I feel like his entire mindset going into this and, and, um, Maybe this isn't his outlook in real life, but, you know, books often take on the, the, the properties or the mindset of their writers, you know. And, and so if, if this book is as, you know, as uh, negative, for lack of a better term, where all of the bad guys are cunning and calculating and they always win because all the roles go their way and all of their plans come to fruition and all the good guys just do something stupid that makes all the bad guys' plans happen – um, maybe that is his outlook in life. And he really is that fatalistic and, and nihilistic. You know, I don't, I don't know, but I, I'm just, glad you brought that. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that word up. Fatalistic. Fatalistic. Um, yeah. He just, because you know, that's uh, fatalism would be uh, like believing that like, LOL, nothing matters. It's all yeah, predetermined exactly. anyway. So exactly. And that, um, when I read, when I read Abercrombie, I just said the name of the series. What's it called? First, uh, the first law trilogy. When, when I read the first and... law, the reason I got I, the, the reason I was so upset at the end of it was that it all it, it was it was cynical uh, and and it was uh, gosh what's the other word that's so slippery in my mind? Point being nihilistic. nihilistic. Yeah, yeah, very nihilistic. Yeah, we'll use that one. Um, you get to the end of it and you find out that that nihilism, that pessimism, that cynicism, is all because of this grand conspiracy. There's a conspiracy oh, yeah. headed up by a character, a small group of characters that are kind of pulling the strings of the world. And um, uh, that did not ring true or sit well with me. When you read A Game of Thrones, it has a lot of those same qualities, but fatalistic uh, and, and kind of randomized uh, is how it seems to view the world. So... there isn't a puppet master behind the scenes. It's just a bunch of people who are left to the devices of fate. And, you know, and so that's what we're dealing with. That sits a little bit better to me. It's still not a worldview that I subscribe to, but it's easier for me to stomach. Um, 
somebody asked about i want to see if i can find the other um oh you know the deaths yeah the deaths so this was going back to Drew's uh, comment. He said, did you feel he executed, pun intended, on the deaths of Ned Stark and Khal Drogo in a way that's still satisfying after a generation of tropes subverting fantasy? Um, I, it, it does work for me because, especially with Khal Drogo, uh, Ned Stark's death mm-hmm. made me upset. <laughs> right? That is, yeah. that is oh, yeah. uh, not, not a nice one. But with Khal Drogo's death, it's it's a little more realistic in that he's not a Superman who can just take a a chest wound and not die of a staph infection. Right. Right. Um, That, that is something that it can happen to anybody, you know, Uh, the, the King or queen of this or the president of that can slip and fall on a banana peel and, and have a concussion and die. Yeah. Right. So So it's satisfying to me in that way. Ira. So you you were saying so you used the word crush before in a different context and I think mm. it's appropriate here. George R. R. Martin doesn't need the crutch of Grimdark to, to sell his book. The book stands on its own merits and it can be Grimdark, but it's also something else. It so I don't think it fits in that in the genre that neatly because it's a messy book and it's supposed to be messy. Yeah. So so I. I think it defies that classification because it's better than the classification itself. Ooh, so, nice. So that, Come, that's kind of how I look at it. Coming from the guy with Come the on. most negative opinion of the book. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. But I agree with you on Cal Drogo for what it's worth. I thought that was one of the better storylines. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, man. <laughs> Not that it doesn't have its own shocking elements of uh, violence. and right. yeah. Crown for uh, a king. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that was something else wasn't it um okay here's another one from uh let's see sorry <laughs> who is this lammy lambs sorry i know he's got a new name on discord i don't care i'm going with lammy lammy asks us is this a story that even needed fantasy elements Ooh, what a good question because i'll tell you um i came to this book after I started the show. So I think I was like two or three seasons into the show and I grabbed a copy of the book. So years and years ago, I grabbed a copy of the book and I was like, Oh, Oh, it's, it's exactly the same. Right. Um, and we can come back to that in a bit, but anyway, I had the same kind of reaction to the book, but it was more muted because I'd already seen the show and they do the same thing in the prologue. You brought up the prologue era. Uh, so as we recall, there's a scouting team out north of the wall. They come across the White Walkers. There's this shocking scene of violence. Uh, and there's one survivor who flees south of the wall again and tries to tell the story and gets executed for abandoning his post. Right, for his trouble. Um, and so you have these White Walkers and this, uh, this fantastical element of these undead. Uh, and they're coming. They are marching on the wall. Uh, we're all screwed. And I remember loving that scene in the show. And then I was like two or three episodes in when I realized, oh, wait, what happened to those those zombie guys? And we don't get an answer. Like, we see glimpses of them for the next like three or four seasons, right? Before they finally become uh, a force to be reckoned with in the story. And so the book does a similar thing. Anyway, um, the book 
has this great opening fantastical scene and then it essentially leaves fantasy behind until we get to maybe mid to late into Daenerys' storyline uh, would be the most yeah. other fantastical part. Am I forgetting anything? Well, there's when John has to kill another White yeah. Walker. John kills the okay. White Walker yeah, in the... Yeah. So. so again, like it's not like they're not there. We get these little bits we, and yeah, pieces. We, we get little And tidbits. then it's like, what happened to this, you know, imminent threat that's going to kill us all if we don't uh, pay attention to it? Apparently well, it's not all that imminent. Good, like, I'm going to use one of your... You, you like to use level one, two, three, and I, sure. I've always loved that. So I think this is a great level two commentary that Martin's making. I really do believe this. Hmm. Um, the fantasy act, the fantasy aspect, is always meant to be the sword of Damocles in, in, in this story, and it's the, it's the big bad heavy that we have to worry about. But everybody is worried about little minor stuff relative to what's going on out uh, out in the the wider world, right? We're all worried about power struggle and who's going to get what and who's going to do this. Kind of a commentary on the world, whatever you may feel one way or the other. Everyone's worried about all these little things, blah, blah, blah. And they're not worried about the big threat that's kind of looming in the background. So that's kind of how I took it. Okay. So whatever that thing might be, a a financial crisis or global warming or whatever the thing is that you're worried about, that's that's your White Walker? That's right. Okay, eh, that's fair. I think no, that's I can a, see an that. interesting way to look at it. Yeah, Ken, do you have any thoughts on that? In terms of a supernatural fantasy book, there really isn't very much fantasy, at least in the first episode, or first episode, first book. <laughs> I I actually haven't watched, I haven't ever uh, watched a full episode of the Game of Game of Thrones. Um, but I, I kind of know how it ends because by the fifth season or sixth season, when I said I was never going to actually tune in, I just kind of like followed with recaps, but... So I know where it's where it's going, and I know that it gets quite fantastical toward the end. But but the first book, I I think, does a great job of setting the table of just sprinkling it in, and it even mentions uh, some things that we don't get to see, like like uh, manticores and and uh, these other fantastical. And, and I don't know if it mentions sphinxes, but it, it mentions mentions several fantastic beasts, not just dragons that we never get to see. Um, but it leaves me going, huh, I wonder what that would be like if there were like, you know, manticore writers or something like that, you know, like there are dragon writers, or at least now will be because we have dragons. Um, but plus the supernatural element of, of magic, the, the witch woman who, who in, in agreeing to help Khal Drogo mm. live doesn't, um, doesn't, doesn't say how, it doesn't specify how he's going to live. And this is, this is another, by the way, this is another uh, of my complaints about good people doing stupid things. Is she never asks, you know, the price. So she never, she never asks for clarification because she's a good person. She just trusts that it's going to turn out all right, you know, and then gets screwed over because it doesn't, you know. She's I mean, a good person or a naive person? Naive. She's 14 she's supposed to be, or yeah, 13 exactly. at the time. She, yeah. She's, yeah. she's a baby. Basically, yeah, which I is mean, she's, thing, but never mind. she's not Ned Stark, <laughs> but it's it's another example of the good people in the story having stupid thrust upon them or foisted upon them because they don't prepare for the stupid or for the for the evil. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. well, let me, and, and yes, she's 14. So. I mean, yeah, I, I, it's not that I necessarily disagree, but let me push back on a little bit. I think part of the point is that the good guys have their lanes and there are there are certain guardrails that they won't cross over. Like, they're going to work within the boundaries of the system. And right. the point is, is that if you're going to go for the throne, Sorry. you just have to be willing to act outside the system 
and violate the, the guardrails, which the Lannisters are obviously very willing to do. Sure, I get that. And I'm not asking them to, you know, to break their convictions or go past those guardrails or anything. Just recognize that other people don't have that same, those same checks and balances and make allowance for it. Say, okay, I want to do this. So-and-so bad guy is going to come at me this way and plan for that. Plan for Peter Baelish to stick a knife under your throat because he's an evil, you know, festering pile. And you know it from the moment he first shows up, you know, He's he's the he's one of the yeah, single Ned, worst but, but, characters but Ned, ever. I Ned, hate him. But, but Ned but Ned showed that that blind spot consistently from the very beginning. Because he did, he and it was a blind spot for Robert. Yeah, it was it was his blind spot the entire I mean, way through. And I mean, look where it got him. You know, just well, but that <sighs> that, that that's a character flaw, not the not it is the author voicing stupid decisions on on the character. So Bingo. I mean, I I'm willing to accept that for Ned because. That, that, that was a consistent trait of his entire time. Right. And that, that's why, by the way, when, when we talk about – I mentioned Ned's death earlier. I said it was 80 percent me being mad at Ned because it was the stupid decisions he Fair made. You know? and, then, and then maybe 18 percent mad at Joffrey and then 2 percent mad at George Martin for conceiving it in the first place. You know? <laughs> I don't I – don't, 8 percent is way too low. I don't think there's ever been a character on page or screen that I have de- – tested the way i detest joffrey oh yeah um i just yeah he's awful and kudos to martin for writing a character that awful i literally i cannot think of somebody who i hate more uh and who i think deserves a a grisly death more than joffrey personally i Um, hate peter baelish more but joffrey is a close second so all right well look if we're talking about characters we hate or don't hate like uh, I'm glad I could no, take no, us I'm there. I'm going to say something nice. I'm going to say something nice. I'm oh, going to okay. say something right. nice. Okay. I could read a book just about Tyrion. Oh, okay. All right. Just about – because Tyrion, he's amoral enough but just moral enough to make him a very kind of interesting character. He's not – I mean he's a villain, but he's also not a villain. He's a very complex character. He's – I mean if I could somehow ignore the rest of his family – He's an interesting person. He is, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, well, he's partly an interesting person because of the rest of his family. Um, okay, so I want to bring up an era point. Okay, so I, I mentioned to you, yeah, we want to have a few bullet points, things we want to talk about. And you brought up the concept of soap opera, um, that this is closer to soap opera than, you know, and other genres that we might ascribe to it. And I love this point. Um, and I, I don't mean to steal it, but I, but I'm gonna, so I can ask this one question <laughs> or you, let me, let, let me actually back into this a little bit different way. Uh, many people have probably been on YouTube and seen my video for how to read the Silmarillion for the first time, right? You're familiar with the Lord of the Rings. You maybe read the Hobbit. Uh, And now you're like, okay, I'm going to read the Silmarillion. Well, if there's one thing that I would tell the person who's reading the Silmarillion for the first time, uh, if there's one thing I could tell them, it would be uh, adjust your expectations. This is not a novel. This is a collection of myths, right, around uh, this, this people. Okay. And so you don't, you're not like following a through line all the way through. Similarly, if somebody was picking up Game of Thrones with no familiarity, you know, good luck in this generation. That's not going to happen. 
But if they, they didn't know anything about the story, they picked it up for the first time, what do I need to know? I would tell them there is no main character. Let go of the idea of main characters. And it made me think of that era when you brought up the idea of soap opera. Is there something more to the idea of this being a soap opera? Uh, am, am I on the right track with, you know, hey, anything could happen to anybody because there's no plot armor the way that we're used to it? Yeah, so I think it's uh, A is partly that. that that's like the part of it too. And then add on the extra layer of how much of what's going to happen to the to the characters in the story is actually meant to drive the story along because you're going to create a, a shock or you're going to create some type of drama solely for the sake of creating that drama. That, that's what soap operas are known for. You have a huge cast of characters. Nobody's the, uh, the central character, and unnecessary drama is going to kind of be exposed to kind of continue the story along. Game of Thrones reminds me more of that than any other genre that I could think of. Have You're muted. Mute. You know, the, there you are. your mom is muted, okay? All right, I don't want to hear it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I was right. Yeah. Uh, um, what was that? Oh, yeah. We're coming up on an hour here for the show. We should start thinking about final thoughts. Um, is, is there anything that we've left off? Either massive complaints or things that you really do enjoy about the book? Any any kind of final thoughts that you want to bring up? Things that really worked for you or really didn't in this? Eric, you go first because I'm still thinking. <laughs> I, can, I can go first. Well, <laughs> I just don't want to steal the mic too much, even if it is me. So look, I'll, I'll kind of give, give a give and take. So the whole part with the wall and the development of the watch and everything else, I like that. That was very well done, and that was, you know, you kind of have John kind of doing his own thing, and he should be. And he remember he's also like 14, 15 years old at the time, and I'm constantly having to remind myself of that because he's acting more mature than his age a lot of the time. So I actually did like that quite a bit, and then I'll just come back to. Just having to read about Tywin and um, Ned and just the whole court and kind of how they interacted with each other, it, it, it left me cold. I just It was like, oh, look, unnecessary drama. Yay, let's move on. Like, it's just, it, it was a, a lot of machinations uh, with hey, machinations. machinations. <laughs> to solely destroy the pot along. It wasn't really, didn't drive the story forward didn't drive hmm. the story forward as much as i would have hoped interesting okay because yeah. that's some of the stuff that i liked the most um but i i love political maneuvering and all that stuff it, you know who has two thumbs and loves the well of ascension this guy this guy <laughs> so uh ken what about not you? me i wanted to get to the punching so <laughs> i um i i do love the punching in this book by the way i he george does a great job of there i am we're best friends again he does a great job of writing a battle scene and I, I really enjoyed most of them. My, my quibble uh, that wasn't really worth a lot of, but is worth a final thought is I feel like uh, era mentioned John, you know, acting older or having to, to, you know, grow up quickly. And I felt like a lot of the younger characters, especially uh, were written too young. I mean, I, I get that he was trying to write, these are young people having to grow up quickly and adapt to situations and, you know, be in, in adult situations that they shouldn't have to be in. 
but I felt like they were still written younger than they needed to be. I felt like they could, and maybe that's because I've seen the characters on a screen, you know, or in pictures. So I I know what the, the game of Thrones characters look like and their actors look like, but I still feel like they should have been older in this book too, you know, just like by a couple of years, you know, I think, I think it's perfectly fair to want that and to be kind of creeped out, right? That yeah. Daenerys is 13. Yes. Uh, when uh, her exactly. brother when her brother is selling her off to Cal Drogo. Yeah. He's he's worried, oh, is she old enough? Does he like them yeah, this young? And, just... and one of the other characters goes, well, she's bled for the first time. So uh, yeah. she's you old know, enough. And he <laughs> wanders. Like, he... There's... Yeah, he wanders there, her there off to have a... their first night and stuff. And I'm like, she is way too young for this, yes. you know? So totally fair to be creeped out by that what i think is going on is he's going hey, you know i'm basing this off of medieval europe yeah. war of the roses and this is kind of this is the way that things were done and and people did have to grow up earlier because you could only expect to live until you're 35 or 40 right and, and i get your fish food i, I so, get that you know but so at the same time jesus yeah. christ ken <laughs> sorry go <laughs> yeah anyway um, all right. So let's see. I'm trying to think if there are any other things. That we, oh, you know what, Ira, you brought up the wall. Um, I wanted to, I, I kept having this thought and I don't know if I'm totally sold on it, but, um, but with the wall, it's like a dumping ground. Okay. So, and what I realized was when you're first reading about the wall and wow, what's the name of the, the character that consoles Arya at the very end? Uh, and like cuts off her hair and, and he's, he's the recruiter for the wall. Right. So he goes oh, around yeah. to all the, the dungeons and the prisons. That I watched. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 his name is escaping me at the moment, but anyway. Um, so that's, that's what he does. He goes to these prisons uh, and he, he recruits people, orphans and, and uh, murderers and rapists and, and yeah. takes them all to the wall. And then when you spend time at the wall, you realize that there are a lot of really good honorable people there as well Jon Snow being one of them but he's surrounded by some who do exhibit those characteristics that we wish we were seeing throughout Westeros and it's just missing and I realized oh my gosh the wall is like it's like yeah these good people like really really good people exist in this world but we send them to go live with the rapists and the murderers because they're as worthless as the one is as worthless as the other and boy, is that a troubling <laughs> worldview for Westeros to have. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I really like the stuff at the wall. Go on. You look like you're about... question. What's that? You said Kipton had a question. Yep. I want him to get yep. a question. So I, I wanted to end on this one. Kipton said, after all this time, what's it like seeing the story in prose again? So Ken, as I understand it, you've only seen a little bit of clips here and there. Uh, Ira, yep. have you watched the show? Not no. one second. Okay. All right. So like I said, I came to it first uh, before the book. Uh, and I'll say this is why if there's something coming out that if there's an adaptation coming out that I've been meaning to read, I will like desperately go and read it first uh, because I cannot read these characters without seeing the actors. Um it's just it's just lodged in my brain. Uh, the Lord of the Rings was that way to a certain extent until I had spent enough years marinating in it that I was kind of able to start separating them. But I don't know that I'll try to do that with the Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> so 
for me, I didn't read it and then watch it and then come back to it. Uh, so his question after all this time, what's it like seeing the story in prose again? Um, I just, uh, this is the second time I've read through it and I liked it a lot both times. Gosh, what a good prose stylist. I, just, I love his stuff. Ira, what about you? So when I first read it, this is back in 96 or whatever it was that it came mm -hmm. out. Um, I didn't like the book at all. Like I was completely against it this time, like with more age, more maturity, kind of reading the book. Like uh, he's a great writer. I mean, that, that I, there's really no other way to say it. He's a great writer. And he, I mean, I, I now get why it became popular, right? Even if I don't like the book myself, I can take a step back and go, okay, I get it. I, I get why people like it. It's not for me, but I get why people like it. So Ken, are you going to continue with the series? I might eventually. I love those jets, by the way. <laughs> I can hear them behind you. Um, I, I probably will, um, mostly because I like uh, Rob Stark. Um, I, I'd like to see... Who is also 14, by the way. I know, and I, it's yep. far too young. I just, that's okay. I, 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 like, uh, I like that. I like Catalan, um, but... Uh, I'm, it might be a You minute. should definitely keep reading that, Ken. You should definitely keep reading that. <laughs> I do know their ultimate fate. So, um, but yeah. Oh, but I, you haven't experienced it, man. I probably <laughs> have not. So, um, yeah, th this was the second time through Game of Thrones. And the first time, it, I always say in a Brandon Sanderson book, I need 100 pages before I catch my bearings. And then I, I get, get going. I needed the entire book the first time to get my bearings. So I understood this one better and I enjoyed it a whole lot more the second time around. So I'll probably yeah. continue on. Okay. But All I don't right. know because you'll never finish the series. So I don't know if I want to. Well, that's, you know, we didn't, we didn't talk about Martin as, <laughs> as the George RR Martin of popular culture. Uh, and that's yeah. probably for the best. We probably should be being honest. Yeah. Um, so you guys are spoiled. You guys are spoiled. That's all I have to say. Like I, I grew up in an era where, oh, books I know, work completely. Like you know, like Robert Jordan has five books into a fourteen book series. You guys are spoiled. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I'm not arguing. <laughs> not arguing. I no my my okay. I I will say one thing on the subject. Finish your series. Don't finish your series. Uh, all can be forgiven if you don't. If you're not a jerk to your readers. So if you start being a jerk to your readers, uh, then that's when I say, F you finish your book. You're, uh, you're a lot more so, charitable to him than I would be. So, yeah, I, well, I'm not even necessarily talking about Martin here. I'm just making a general statement on our being spoiled with people who finish their series. So, yeah. Um, all right. I, like I said at the beginning, I know that we didn't get to a million things. Honestly, we could do a 12 part series on this book and dig into a lot of the character details. We could do a whole book on Sansa. What a character. We didn't so, even yeah, mention I know her. we're Holy not cow. getting to a whole bunch of stuff, um, but we are going to leave it there. Hit up discord and let me know if you'd like us to continue with this series. Um, I know that this is a popular book series, obviously, but one of the reasons I've held off on covering it for so long is a, it's not finished, right? So there is that to consider, but much more important is that there are a million other 
sources of Game of Thrones content out there. And I'm not sure what we're going to add to it. But hey, at least you got an episode with some of our thoughts on this book. So, Ken, thanks for joining. Ira, especially Ira, uh, for coming on the first time. And we need to uh, ask you, what do you want to what do you want to what do you want to push? What do the people need to oh. listen to? I'm sorry. They, yeah, they, they need to listen to uh, a podcast I'm doing with a uh, little red book. Everyone knows we're on, on Discord uh, called Wordless, where we uh, go over short stories and shorter books that, that people don't pay attention to as much. Wordless. Is that two words or one? It's one, two words, but it's meant as a little bit of a, a little play pun. Yeah, a little play on words there. So, <laughs> so, so search Wordless. And, uh, and yeah, I love that. I love that idea of the shorter stuff. Cause like you said, you're not usually a big fan of huge door stoppers, right? Uh, not, not my thing. You know, when you go on a plane, you got to go read a book. You know, you want to read something that you can get done on a two hour plane ride, not a 16 hour plane ride. So there you go. All right. So go check out the wordless podcast, go to the legendarium.com for all the stuff I mentioned before. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for chatting and I will talk to everybody next time.